a week ago, like most of you, I had never heard of Squirrel Hill, Pennsylvania. But that's forever changed. Since an arm attack shattered the Shabbat of the Tree of Life congregation, claiming the lives of 11 Jews, we've heard countless hours of CNN and CBC repeating the same tropes of editorials and tweets and Facebook posts, declaring solidarity with the Jewish community of Pittsburgh and throughout the world, all of which are touching and well-intentioned. And at the same time, we've heard people reminding us that Jews are the canary in the mineshaft of civilization, telling us that this wasn't just an attack on a synagogue and Jews, but in everyone who cares for liberty and tolerance. And while this may all be true, I must confess it is of little comfort to me. This morning I have a message for my people, the Jewish people, and to our Muslim and Christian friends and brothers and sisters who were here on this morning supporting us. I hope you find something and meaning in what I say as well. Because I want you to know this. To Jews, this past week was not about hate. It's about history. Three summers ago, I was in Venice, Italy for Shabbat. We had emailed our passports week in advance for security screening and waited for approval before being told that we were in fact permitted to enter the synagogue, which happens to be cloistered in a cul-de-sac of sorts at the entrance it is protected by a bulletproof glass sentry box. And when I saw the sentry box, I laughed. After all, a guard locked inside the box can't be there to protect people outside the box. The same trip, we also went to Florence and visited the synagogue, which had been recently restored thanks to a $5 million gift from the designer Valentino. The synagogue required us to leave our metal objects in a locker, passed through a metal detector and then a manual security check. Our tour guide in Rome, herself a Roman Jew, whose family dates back more than 1,800 years in the city, told us that there are no more young Jews in Rome. They either go to America or they go to Israel. After this peak, I had to wonder if the first half of that answer is as true as it was three years ago. A year earlier, we were in Vienna, and the synagogue there is at the end of a closed-off road patrolled by security forces 20 and 24 hours a day. Before that, we were in Paris, and our military presence at Jewish institutions, including kosher supermarkets, are not acts of deterrence. They are acts of necessity, where the very real fear is, is that without their presence, that there will be attacks. And I spend a fair amount of time in churches and mosques throughout the city doing speaking and interfaith work, and none of them have security in their buildings. I have never been asked once to open my coat or ask who I'm coming to visit. Their doors are always open. They have nothing to fear. But not us. So this morning, when you were getting ready to come here, could you honestly tell me that you didn't have a pause of thought? Wondering what if? 
Did you wonder if you should bring your children? And did you wonder if it was safe to let them wander the building? I mean, it's not impossible, but the same could happen here. After all, who would have thought it could have happened in Pittsburgh? Last week didn't happen in the obvious targets. It wasn't in New York or Los Angeles or Miami, but in Pittsburgh. And if Pittsburgh is a target, then where and what is everywhere else now? At this moment, I can't remember when we started having security at synagogues, but obviously in Toronto it's been long enough that we don't remember, and by now it seems normal and ordinary to us. We started with one person, sometimes we have two or three. All of them are unarmed, except over the high holidays when we have armed, off-duty police officers in the building. And over this past week, we've been told about high-level security discussions of meetings with community leaders and government officials, both locally and federally, and I am no prophet. But you can write this down and save it. There will be armed police at Jewish institutions in the city, and it will be sooner than any of us would like to imagine. But the hard and honest truth is this. There is no security that we can provide to make this or any synagogue truly safe. And the harder and more honest truth is that we will increase our security, but none of it will make us safer. Because one determined person with modest firearm skill can lethally make their way past holstered and unsuspected armed security personnel very quickly. The level of security needed to secure a facility like this is heavy and expensive. Multiply that over synagogues and schools and institutions, and I think you understand what I'm talking about. Because if all safety on some level is an illusion, that this kind of protection ranks among the worst kinds, that our answer to hatred and violence is to hire people with guns to walk around our buildings, to place concrete balustrades in the areas exposed to roads, to bulletproof our glass windows and wire CCTV cameras. And eventually, when someone manages to get through the guy with the gun in front of the building and the concrete barriers and overwhelms the bulletproof glass and foils the electronic detection, what's our answer next? That we start building our buildings underground? Or maybe we become like Europe, that we hide our addresses from public searches and we never, ever display the name of a Jewish organization on the outside of the building. Is that how we want to live? The American president said hours after something about how an armed guard could have stopped the attack. Yeah, maybe. But probably not. And in any event, the death of 11 worshipers is certainly no time to repeating NRA talking points. Others have said that we need to engage in more outreach and more education about Jews and Judaism, about the lessons of anti-Semitism and the Holocaust, all of which I support. But let's dispose of that illusion too. If education was the key to preventing anti-Semitism, the Holocaust would have never happened. The planners and implementers of the Nazi final solution were all highly educated. I once read that 86% of all concentration camp commandants 
had university degrees. But more than that, the Jewish community has engaged enormous time and effort and resources to explain our story to the world. And in return, we hear that the only minority in Canada and the United States facing annual increases in hate crimes are Jews. Which is to say, maybe Pittsburgh is not an anomaly. Maybe it's a signal. Annual increases of anti-Semitic hate crimes, the rate of 60% in the States, 30% here in Canada, has to ask us something which is our question for this joyful Shabbat celebrating Ben's Bar Mitzvah and this pensive Shabbat as we mourn the dead from last week. Our question is, what are the Jews to do? The echo of this question rings through the mystic chords of time because next week is the 80th anniversary of Kristallnacht, that night when there could be no more illusions about the intentions of Nazi Germany and the fate of Europe's Jews. So what are the Jews to do? My answer will come. But first, let us pause for prayer, music, and then some more thought, more thought for me. Everyone, please rise on page 368. So I promised you an answer. What are the Jews to do? Well, there's two options. It's binary. One is best expressed by the pre-war refugee and early Zionist writer Arthur Kessler. Kessel said that after the founding of the State of Israel, Jews had two choices. We could move to Israel and be Israelis and Jews there. Or if we didn't want to go, he said the safest thing to do is to leave Judaism. And that's what Kessler did. Spent the rest of his life in London, unaffiliated, uncommitted, completely disavowed himself from Judaism. But the truth of the matter is, what Kessler said was just an echo of what had been taking place in Europe for hundreds of years. Forced by violence and anti-Semitism, Jews throughout Europe, particularly Western Europe, had made their way to churches to convert to Christianity. It was a way for them to not only gain safety, but also opportunities for themselves. One example of that is the life of the great 20th century composer Arthur Schoenberg. Schoenberg came from an ambivalent Jewish Viennese family, fell in love with a Christian girl. The only way that he was allowed to marry her was to be baptized, which he did. The day that he walked out of the church, he told his friends, I've made it. I'm safe. And there were work opportunities available to him that he would have never had before. It wasn't so tr- the same wasn't so true for his still Jewish cousins in Vienna. When the Nazis made their way into Vienna, they deported all the Jews. They looted and stole, broke into homes and stole art and other precious things. And one of his lone surviving Jewish cousins, her name was Maria Altman. Maria Altman was the sole heir to the estate of the Bloch family, a Viennese Jewish family. 
and Maria sued the Austrian government to have the right of returning her family prized masterpiece. It was a portrait made by the author, by the artist Gustav Klimt, of her beloved aunt, Adele Bloch. The Austrian government refused. If you've read the book or seen the movie, A Woman in Gold, that's the story. Maria at one point wanted to leave it all behind because lawsuits, as many of you know, had lots of ups and downs. There were successes and there were many failures. And her lawyer said to her, Maria, you must not stop. Do not give up because this is not for you. It's for those who have come before and those who will come after. And who was her lawyer? It was a man named Ronald Schoenberg. Years later, after Arthur Schoenberg converted to Christianity, divorced and alone, his friends brought him to a Paris synagogue on Kol Nidre night. He sat in the back, and by the end of the evening, he was crying into his hands. His, Fred, his friends came over to him and asked him, Arthur, is everything okay? And he said, now it is. A year later, he came back to Judaism at that same synagogue. The Torahs were out. The rabbi was president. And his witness of good faith was none other than Mark Chagall. But what would have happened if Arthur Schoenberg had not gone to that synagogue on Kol Nidre? Would his grandson Ronald had cared about some Jewish woman who was trying to get a painting back? I don't think so. Which is all a way of saying to you that all of this is so much stronger than all of that. I learned this lesson too. 30 years ago on a chilly spring evening in Jerusalem, me there standing in my uniform, my German-born grandmother held my, hand, my face in her hands and said, Aaron, you are not just a Jew. You are an Israeli. Which means that we have come too far and have given up too much to give up now. We don't quit. We hold on to this. If the world is changing, and I suspect it is, our answer is, is to hold on to this. Light your Sabbath candles. If you haven't before, put a challah on your table on Shabbat. Study your faith. Because if the world is in fact changing, let us be the very strongest we can be. And this is the greatest strength that we have in our life. Which is to say that all of this is so much stronger than all of that. The music that is coming next is inspired by this very idea. The first chief rabbi of Israel, Abraham Cook, wrote a poem called Alei Lema'ala Alei. That when the world turns one way, Alei, we go higher. Shabbat Shalom.